Welcome, everyone. We are back with the Stanford Center for South Asia podcast. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center. All our podcasts and information about the Center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome Professor Soledad Ortiz Prilaman, who is an Assistant Professor of Political Science here at Stanford. Her research lies at the intersections of comparative political economy, development, and gender with a focus on South Asia. And today we are going to be talking about the theme of our podcast series and also of our lives at the moment, COVID-19, in the context of um, self-help groups in India with particular reference to women's political engagement. Soledad, thank you so much for making time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and, and can't wait for this conversation. We're thrilled to have you. I always like to start off by asking my guests to just introduce themselves, tell us a bit more about themselves. So if you are okay with that, please go ahead. Um, sure, absolutely. I am I'm actually new to the Stanford community starting just in September. What a year um, to start. <laughs> right. <laughs> same, same boat here, same boat. Yes, yeah, you understand <laughs> well. Um, I have spent uh, the last eight years um, both working on my dissertation and, and postdoctoral work um, studying women's political behavior in South Asia and particularly in India. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the sort of culmination um, of a lot of that research and a book project I'm currently working on um, and an agenda moving forward. Well, welcome to Stanford. Uh, um, I'm also a new addition and it is indeed quite the year to be starting off, but we're, we're doing okay. We're making the most of it. Um, and uh, this podcast series is something really very productive to come out of our current home working situation. So that's a good thing. I'd like to talk a little bit about your overall research before zooming in on uh, COVID. You um, work on women's political behavior in India, specifically in Madhya Pradesh and and more specifically in Gorda Dongri. Can you say a bit more about that region and then also about the work you're doing there? Absolutely, and in fact, um, sort of my entry into this uh, research agenda came hand in hand with my um, first visiting Madhya Pradesh and, and getting settled in, um, in the areas that I work. Um, and so most of my work to date has focused in six rural districts of Madhya Pradesh. Okay. And I, found these districts or sort of ended up being focused here because um, my research is intimately partnered with an, an Indian-based NGO named Pradhan. And um, I met Pradhan, I don't know, it was about eight years ago now, when I was first starting doctoral work. Um, and because they work largely with women, um, as you'll hear me talk about a lot today, they, you know, are one of the pioneers of the self-help group movement within India. Um, and they work on a, a, lot, a range of issues around women's livelihoods. Um, and empowerment. Um, and while they work in seven, seven states and now I think maybe even more, um, some of the communities that they've worked in for the last 30, 35 years are in MP. And so I uh, got the chance to, to visit and then um, work explicitly with the teams that they have um, in MP. And, and I think one of the things that, that's particularly interesting and um, about the, those communities and those districts is that where Pradhan tends to focus their efforts and energies is in very sort of rural, remote uh, communities, largely tribal communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the work that I do because of the nature of that partnership has ended up revolving 
um, around understanding um, those populations and getting to know people in those communities a bit better. Um, although I should say that now, um, hopefully post-COVID, um, I you know, had plans to expand some of this work in Bihar and Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, oh, yeah. so. Um, and is that because of the tribal communities there too? Is, was that the idea? Um, somewhat. So some of the work is partnered um, with Pradhan, looking in, in Jharkhand in particular at the communities they work with there, which are largely tribal. Mm -hmm. However, um, a lot of the reason for these uh, expanding to these other states is that um, the partnership that I have around self-help groups has expanded to include the government arm, um, which is the National Rural Livelihoods Mission centered in the Ministry of Rural Development. Um, and these are some of the states that have had the largest uh, government-led self-help group intervention. So trying to think about some of the questions that I've studied at a very micro level, think about scaling them up. Um, how does this, you know, how, how do you see the same kinds of things and, and uh, patterns of behavior happening um, in these other communities and what can we learn from expanding that scope of inquiry? Right. Right. So I'm always um, hmm, uh, a little confused by the, the government wing of self-help, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I want to um, ask a few more questions about that. Uh, before that, I'd like to nuance this notion of um, political empowerment um, a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I've also done some work in Madhya Pradesh, but in Bhopal, the capital, um, and um, I've been somewhat peripherally involved with organizations that both medically treat and advocate for people affected by the 1984 Union Carbide gas disaster. And there I have seen that women are enormously active in, in social mobilization and also in advo advocacy, if um, primarily for their families. And so I'm, I'm wondering if um, we can bring some more nuance into definitions of political engagement. Where do you see women take more ownership of political decision making and perhaps where not so much um, and and do they stand up for themselves or is it more about the family sorry that's a lot of questions uh, but there's kind of a whole package there around this idea of engagement no it's a it's a great question and it's you know in many ways the question at the very heart of the book that i'm working on which is Yay. that <laughs> women have uh, many identities that we navigate um, um, and how do how do those various identities um, impact our political behavior and, and why do some of them sort of become more politically mobilized than others. Um, so I think it's, you know, spot on with the kinds of things I think about regularly. Um, but I right. guess in, in, in answering that, um, just to maybe zoom out a little bit, I should have mentioned earlier that part of how I got started in this work was actually not necessarily because uh, thinking explicitly around gendered political participation but in thinking about um, how there are so many different development projects, microfinance projects, various other um, social welfare programs that are targeted at women. Um, and for example, you know, Pradhan is involved in a lot of that work. I mentioned they do a lot of work around livelihoods um, and agriculture. Um, and, you know, I had this question about, you know, do these programs have consequences for political behavior? And so, you know, when we think about political participation, and when I first got into this, when I thought about political participation, um, we often think about two specific things. We think about voting and we think about electoral representation, who gets into office. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, in India, there's been a lot of attention, both within the scholarly community and within the policy 
space around both of those specific forms of political participation. Right. Um, you know, so for example, from the early 90s onward, um, after the constitutional amendment, there's been this huge uh, sort of conversation around the reservation system for women um, in the panchayat governments and, and around representation of women. And we've seen as a result, this massive uptick um, in women's representation. And a lot of academics have studied the implications of that for, uh, for women's empowerment more broadly. Right. Um, but there's also been sort of a similar focus on women's voter turnout. I think this is something that we've started to hear a lot more about um, in, you know, for example, the recent national elections. You know, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that women have started to turn out at a much higher rate than previously and that in some places women are even turning out to vote more than men right mm -hmm. and in fact in some ways this isn't super surprising to me when i first got to mp and I, I started looking at the data i saw that not just a majority but more than 90 percent of women were turning out in local elections wow and you know at about the same rate um, as men. So in terms of both electoral representation and voter turnout, we actually don't see much of a gender gap okay. in terms of, of uh, participation. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, this is really positive. It, it, it suggests that there's this, this shift that's happening and changing tides that are leading to sort of greater voice by women in, um, in electoral processes and representation of women. Um, however, that said, I think, you know, the, a cynical version where people have questioned both of these measures and whether they're true measures of women's political agency. Um, are women voting with autonomy um, when women are locally elected officials? Do they have autonomy um, and the authority that sort of their male equivalents have? Um, and it's something I think there's still, you know, evidence about. I'm not, I'm not trying to take the cynic's view. Sure. Um, but you know, still some question about does does the fact that we see parity or you know close to parity in, in these two measures of political participation mean that women are active uh, and autonomous political agents? And you know that ultimately ended up being um, something that that inspired the work I did in MP because I got there and I, I looked at this data and I saw you know these the these higher rates of participation when we think of those two measures. But then when I would visit many of these communities, um, I would see that, you know, I, I had an interview with a woman and I was talking to her about her political preferences and what she wanted out of government. And at the very end of the interview, she said, you know, can we keep talking? Um, I'm like, I have no space to voice my concerns. No one else has ever cared about what I want from politics. Mm. And I really just want to talk about this. And so, some of these qualitative experiences that I had stood in contrast with right. um, what the data was telling me. And so, um, so I, uh, I decided to collect some data on non-electoral forms of participation, things like you know, attending public meetings, making demands on local officials, contacting local officials, um, petitioning, um, protesting, um, the sort of more localized forms, but also very costly forms of political participation. Um, and I collected data in MP, and while there's not a lot of data at, at scale, there are a few sources of data, particularly around um, attendance at Gram Sabha and other public meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this shows that when we look at these non-electoral forms of participation, there's a huge gender gap, where women are participating at about a quarter to a third the rate of men. Um, 
And for example, less than 25% of women report generally having ever in their life gone to a public meeting um, as compared to about 75% of men. So interesting. I mean, that, that's not what I saw in Bhopal, but of course there, because of the gas disaster, most of the people who died were men. And so I'm wondering if the women were mobilizing because there weren't men to do it for them and they were advocating for their children. You know, that's, it's really interesting. And I should say that all the work that I have done has been, you know, largely focused in rural villages. Um, and so I think there's like also a really interesting um, comparison angle to think about urban communities. And for example, um, Adam Auerbach and Tarek Thatchel um, have some work about women uh, brokers and women community leaders in um, Bhopal, actually, um, and have a similar story to yours. Although often, I think in the ways that you're citing as well, often these sort of informal forms of participation um, are where women end up uh, sort of taking authority um, and participating. Um, but I can't say I'm an expert on urban, urban politics. Yeah, and I just, just have to clarify, I think that the, the women that I, uh, I've seen in action in Bhopal, um, apart from perhaps the organizers, but the women that are out there, um, you know, slogans and having sit-ins, I mean, not dissimilar to Shaheen Bagh, actually. These are not, they're maybe urban, but they're not urbane. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the sense of having been through advanced formal education and, and being uh, what we might call middle class. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, in some ways, I also think that part of what the experiences you're highlighting, you know, speak to is, is what these women are mobilizing for as well. Um, and, you know, part of what I, I ended up then thinking about was, well, you know, if you have this um, this sort of puzzle um, that, that we see sort of engagement of women on some spaces, but then um, complete, you know, gender inequality and other forms of participation, you know, why is it? Why is it that women aren't engaging in these costly forms of participation? Um, or potentially, why are they engaging in particular ways? Um, when, you know, when those are the, the, the explicit forms of political participation that bear the most direct benefit to their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, attendance at these meetings actually can change whether you get access to services or how local governments allocate their budgets. Right. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, the answer that I've, um, that I am giving um, is that it, it evolves around what we, we talked about at the very beginning of this, which is, you know, thinking about the structure of women's lives um, and the networks within which um, they engage and thinking particularly about the role that the household plays um, in women's lives because, you know, households have shared interests um, and we know that participation is really costly. Um, and so what, what I've seen is that for many households, um, political engagement is actually a household decision, um, both to maximize what the household can take away from politics. You know, many schemes are delivered at the household level, but also to minimize the costs of participation. Um, and while, you know, that in and of itself is not super novel, you know, we have lots of models of unitary household behavior. Um, those often assume, though, that this is like an efficient outcome, that, you know, households behave that this way because they share the same preferences and because they want exactly the same things. And, and I think that part of the work I'm trying to do and what I've at least observed through the conversations like the one I mentioned earlier is that in many cases this isn't efficient and that women's desires aren't always represented um, when households are making. Um, so for example, there's um, a really interesting paper by Sarah Khan based in Pakistan where mm -hmm. she 
She surveys husbands and wives and asks them about their political preferences. And then she says that she can, she's going to relay the preferences of one member of the household and ask them who's they're going to relay. And men, of course, overwhelmingly relay their own preferences. Um, women overwhelmingly relay their husband's preferences. Right. And then she finds that even when she says, I'll pay you money to relay your own preferences, still a substantial number of women say, we will forego your money to relay our husband's preferences. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And it's usually what she shows is that it's the households where the preferences are the furthest apart that yeah. women are most likely to, to want to signal their husband's preferences. So all of this to say that the, this household-based uh, decision-making um, is part of what creates these gender inequalities, both in terms of what, whose interests we're hearing about, yeah. um, also in terms of who's participating. Um, yeah. that, that many, um, I've talked to so many women who've talked about wanting to engage in politics and being you know, constrained to do so um, by the men in the household who, who want to take on um, that political participation. Um, as well as by the communities within which they operate, where sort of social norms dictate um, or at least allow for enforcement of, um, of exclusion of women from political spaces. You know, I, I talked to a woman who said she was actually, you know, that men took sticks and tried to beat her out of a public meeting um, because women weren't supposed to be in those spaces. Right. And so even if women are able to break away from the household, um, many face backlash and social pressure to yeah. defer political authority uh, to men um, in, in these spaces. It's, it's somewhat unfortunate. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm listening to you with, with great uh, fascination and at the same time, it's, it's not entirely unpredictable. So it's, uh, it's a little disappointing, I guess, in that sense. No, and, and I don't think this is, you know, um, something we've chatted about many other times, but I, I don't think this is something unique to, uh, to India or the way that, they, that things operate. I think households in much of the world um, make political decisions, whether it's as explicit, you know, I've, I've highlighted a few cases where there's been explicit coercion, but it doesn't always have to be explicitly coercive. It can simply be, you know, who you're talking to about politics is going to shape the kinds of things you demand and what you expect over your own behavior. And if you're, you know, your closest um, political discussion partners are the people in your household, then the primacy of household interests um, is going to be raised relative to, say, the primacy of, of gender-based interests. Yeah, I'm wondering what that kind of research would yield, for instance, in the United States, but also with the, politics here are sufficiently polarized that I imagine that most people would look for life partners who are uh, close to themselves in political beliefs. I mean, that would be, I'm sure there are studies out there, I'm not familiar with them, but it's something to look up how that might work, work yeah. in your life. And it's interesting. So one of the, one of the pieces um, of work that was actually completed by a, a former PhD student in the poli-sci department here at Stanford, um, she went along with a few co-authors to a bunch of these local meetings in India and actually recorded the meetings and looked at um, gendered speech patterns um, as well as response by public officials. Uh -huh. And unsurprisingly, they find that women speak less and receive less feedback and response mm -hmm. um, from elected officials. But there's an identical study in the U.S. that shows identical results. Right. <laughs> so, it's definitely an interesting question. Um, 
But yes, these are, these are dynamics that I think we're probably familiar with. We don't have to travel too far to know that feeling. Exactly. And, um, but I think what's, what's maybe unique, um, or at least where, where I have felt really excited in, in studying the Indian context was then, you know, think, was when I, I sort of learned and, and started to engage with self-help groups, with these women's groups, which um, exist in, in much, uh, much greater and more structured forms um, in India. And, and what was interesting is that these groups, I mean, these are credit groups. These are groups that were formed to help women and families gain access to informal savings and credit and other livelihoods opportunities. You know, there were sort of a financial inclusion scheme right. aimed at economic empowerment. Um, and yet the nature of these groups helps solve a lot of the constraints that women face to political participation. I mean, these groups bring women together in an institutionalized space, um, a space where, for example, there are clear, you know, there's a space to practice the articulation of demands, um, to sort of gain confidence and voice, um, but importantly, to sort of build social capital with, uh, with other women, you know, and, and um, leverage that social capital for collective action. I mean, a lot of the constraints that I've mentioned are about sort of the structure of women's networks. And so it, you know, it, it's, is in, uh, an implication of that is that, you know, providing, say, some um, resource to an individual woman is unlikely to change their ability to then go and combat these broader network and normative um, constraints. And, and so what these groups do is they instead provide space, you know, the opportunity for and the capacity for collective action um, that through which women can sort of gain entry into these non-electoral forms of participation and gain autonomy and agency over their own um, political action. Um, and all of this with these programs that were sort of initially intended um, as credit collectives. Um, and so that's right. So that that's what I'm thinking because well, microcredit is is looms large in everything we discuss and and is a complicated topic. But um, I think in many ways it has not done what it was supposed to do uh, in terms of economic independence or m maybe even female empowerment through um, through economic means. But you seem to be saying there are some or many unintended positive side effects in terms of um, a sense of collectivity. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, I, I think you're, you're right. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that these, you know, microfinance has not been the silver bullet to economic right. um, that many hoped it would be. Um, you know, however, you know, many of the studies that we have of microcredit and of a lot of, you know, um, economic and development focused schemes, you know, think about those sort of first order consequences um, around economic empowerment and financial inclusion. And, and what I think, you know, I, what I'm hoping that this, um, that this research suggests is that actually the, the way that we design our programs, um, for example, by designing them to have regular uh, meetings of women who maybe normally wouldn't meet in these sort of formalized yeah. spaces, um, can have these, you know, really um, interesting unintended consequences that actually yield um, not necessarily economic empowerment, but empowerment and agency in other domains. It's amazing. Um, Gives me goosebumps a little, actually. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I feel this way too. It was so, it was, 
in part, the partnership with Pradhan came about because, you know, they, they said we've we been working in these areas for decades. Um, and, you know, we're not sure if, if um, you know, they, they, their model is incredible and they believe in it and I do too, but, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were really optimizing and doing the best by the communities they served in it. You know, they had this intuition that their bigger effects were not coming from um, the, say, livelihoods portion of it, but from maybe other aspects. And, and um, it, was, it was really amazing to, to see that play out in, in the evidence. So we've talked about the, um, the, the quote-unquote government wing of self-help, and I, I want to bring the conversation to um, COVID. Um, I did a podcast um, recently with Maria Achter, and we talked about the use of social media as well as other forms of technology to both um, spread and track information. Uh, and it seems that in its desire to reach as many people as possible, the state in India is now also mobilizing informal non-state networks to maximize its COVID responses. Is that correct? And does that link in with your work then? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, in fact, so I, um, I was able to participate in a few webinars and, and broader conversations this week um, with partners in India about the COVID response. Um, amazing. Uh, and it, yeah, it's, it's amazing how much of the response is now um, on the ground response, particularly in remote rural communities, is being driven by self-help groups and these other informal institutions um, that exist parallel to government institutions. And, you know, some of that I think is, is through explicit mobilization by the state. But, you know, what, what struck me is as, as the, the, one of the additional secretaries at the Ministry of Rural Development was highlighting is that some of this has actually happened autonomously, um, where they've not asked these self-help groups to step in, but these, you know, th these groups and these women saw and avoid um, in the formal institutional structures. And so they, you know, mobilized their institutions um, to respond. And, and I think that, you know, in a, in a really interesting and sort of surprising unintended way, COVID um, is in fact a sort of clear example of how women's groups and their institutional structures can respond to governance needs um, and service delivery. And to give you an example of that, one of the things I you know, learned is that um, self-help groups across India um, have been supporting in a, in a variety of COVID response. Um, so for example, they've been manufacturing masks. I learned that they've manufactured more than 100 million masks in India. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you know, manufacturing a PPE and sanitizer. They've been leading some of the information campaigns about sort of what social distancing is and what the appropriate procedures are. Um, but they've also started, one thing I was struck when I started to learn about it is they've, they've started to recognize the importance, the sort of economic consequences of COVID. And so, you know, I was told that, that self-help groups have started now more than 12,000 community kitchens in villages uh -huh. to try and ensure that um, even if, you know, for families um, that maybe don't have access to food otherwise, that, um, that they're being provided food. Um, so a very explicit reaction to the COVID. Thank you for sharing that um, with us. Uh, this is kind of, you know, I wouldn't say hot off the press, but this is kind of coming in. Uh, I think you had some information sharing even this uh, this week. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in just a second. Um, but I'm 
I'm curious about this. So when I was talking to uh, Madia Achter, who, uh, who did an earlier podcast with me, um, our discussion led to the somewhat depressing prediction uh, or, or perhaps fear that the realities of COVID life erode this, the distinction of work and home in ways that particularly disadvantage women and female identified people um, who are once again taking on the majority of uh, domestic roles. And just uh, talking to you, um, Soledad, is it too optimistic to predict that maybe in South Asia, the long-term effects of COVID will be that women's networks will be viewed differently and women's participation in decision-making will be valued on different and, and dare I say, better terms? I mean, I sure hope so. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, I, there's a, there's, there's a real challenge here because COVID is in many respects going to some of the worst outcomes from COVID are going to be felt by women um, for some of the reasons that Medea has already mentioned, um, you know, through the lockdown itself and the challenges that that raises for family and care responsibilities and, um, and other potential, you know, concerns around violence and things. Of course. But also through the economic consequences that can come later. I mean, there's a fear right now, um, and, and some evidence starting to show that, for example, women's work is going to be particularly hard hit yeah. in India. Um, yeah. as men both return home uh, to their villages yeah. mm -hmm. to find work, and then particularly with the decline of industries um, that women have sort of had the highest placement in. So, you know, there's, there's the, this concern that COVID will have these like very negative consequences for women. And I think we need a lot more evidence to understand that. But all of that said, I think um, the existence of women's groups and the role that these women's groups are playing in the COVID response may actually bring greater awareness to the problems, the particular problems that women face um, and, you know, hopefully elevate those conversations right. such that, you know, we may see both um, hopefully greater response to the challenge, the particular challenges of women, but also, as you highlight and suggest, you know, ideally a recognition of the role that these women are playing, both you know in their households and in you know the labor market, but also as part of these institutions um, in in responding to the situation. And so, while we don't have a counterfactual to any of this, um, an optimistic view is that you know at least. Um, women's lives and I suspect men's as well are you know hopefully better for the existence of women's groups during this time right I, I, we, we can we can agree on that I think perhaps my optimism was a little bit too exuberant but um, I'm always looking for these silver linings and and um, uh, sometimes it's just not the time is not there yet uh, you did mention uh, before that you have been in touch uh, through these webinars with uh, with uh, partners on the ground who are sharing COVID-related information. Are, are there any other updates or anything else that you didn't get to when you were speaking earlier? Not, not, um, not a lot of big updates. I think you know one of the things that uh, I've seen coming up in um, in those conversations with uh, with partners that are sort of academic partners, policy partners. Um, that you know it's great to be hearing about the response both the challenges that women are facing and the response that women are having to COVID. i think one of the things that it has done is raise um raise an awareness about the the need for getting gendered data right. in 
this time, which is something that, you know, there are a lot of rapid re response surveys happening and other forms of data. And, you know, I, I'm really pleased that, um, that at least some uh, policy partners and, and members of the, the response community are, are taking that, you know, seriously. And so, you know, I'm excited um, as well as, you know, uh, as we all are just um, curious and awaiting what we learn from sort of continuing to get better information about the, the challenge of COVID and how it's affecting women in particular. Soledad, thank you so much for sharing your work and your experiences and, and, uh, and, and the recent information that you were able to obtain uh, with us today. Uh, good luck with everything uh, that's ahead. It's a time of great uncertainty uh, and I'm so pleased that you were able to find the time to uh, share your experiences with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, um, it was my pleasure to get to have this conversation. I've loved um, listening to the other podcasts you've done. So great to, to be a part of it. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for being here. Well, that's a great seg into my uh, closing statement, which is to remind everyone there are other podcasts, both in the past and uh, hopefully in the future. Uh, and they are all available on our website. It's the Stanford Center for South Asia. The website southasia.stanford.edu. I have been Lalita Duperon and I look forward to welcoming you again.